Thanks, sir. Try to move obstacles out of the way because I'm like, remember the old Jerry Lewis movies? Yeah, <laughs> that'll happen. Well, good morning, everybody. I like that last song. I tell you, he left, he lifted me. That's uh, that's I needed that today. I need God just to lift me up. Everybody having a good week? How many of you are lazy this week? I asked that question to somebody. A few people. How many of you are working like a maniac this week? Yeah, the majority. All right. Well. <laughs> Even though it's summertime, you know, we got we to gotta do what we got to do, take care of the business, especially the yard, right? Anybody cutting their yards? Or are you just letting it go? Some of the guys don't want to look up, you know. <laughs> All right. Well, Christine and I had a good week. We, uh, we celebrated the anniversary. We took a little getaway, bed and breakfast. Woo! And it was nice. And we went to Indiana. We didn't, I don't know anything about Indiana. Maybe she does, but. Uh, Matt, the town of Madison, Indiana, green and plush. We stayed at this vineyard, uh, bed and breakfast vineyard, and uh, it was very nice. And it was a nice little getaway. You guys, you got to take your wife on a little two-day island somewhere. It, just, it helps. Yeah, yes. Somebody got an amen over here. <laughs> All right, what are we going to do today? Uh, do we have any visitors, by the way? Anyone that's here, never been here before? If you are and you're kind of hidden in there, we just want to welcome you. We're glad that you're with us today. We hope you enjoy the remainder of the service. Turn in your Bibles, if you would, please, to the Gospel of Luke. Luke's Gospel, Dr. Luke, chapter 19. Today's sermon, the, the title of the sermon is A Zacchaeus Opportunity. A Zacchaeus Opportunity. Everyone has a window of opportunity in Christ as they live their life in Christ. In today's narrative, we're going to see that Zacchaeus had an opportunity and he took full advantage of it. Follow along with me, 10 verses of Scripture, verses 1 through 10. I believe we're in the New King James. If you want to look at it up here in the projection, if you don't like that, you can use your own translation. I hope you brought that with you. All right, here we go. Verse 1. Then Jesus entered and passed through Jericho. Now behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus who was a chief tax collector, and he was rich. And he sought to see who Jesus was, but could not because of the crowd, for he was of short stature. So he ran ahead and climbed up into the sycamore tree to see him, for he was going to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and saw him and said to him, Zacchaeus, make haste. And come down, for today I must stay at your house. So he made haste and came down and received him joyfully. But when they saw it, they all complained, saying, He has gone to be a guest with a man who is a sinner. Then Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Lord, look, I give half of my goods to the poor. And if I have taken anything from anyone by false accusation, I restored fourfold. And Jesus said, today salvation has come to this house because he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. Let's pray. Father, help us to glean into the story. Help us, Lord, to capture those nuggets of truth 
and apply them in our own life. We give you all the honor. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, what is it about the ministry of Jesus that got Zacchaeus all stirred up was my first question. What is it he heard that brought about such curiosity, such hospitality from the least likely person? The ministry of Jesus is like none other, in my view. It's dynamic. It leaves in its wake marvel, wonder, astonishment, and profound restoration. Who can resist our Savior? Who can? Now, I'm sure Zacchaeus was already hearing incredible stories. I think he was, in, he was hearing incredible stories before Jesus even came by because of his reaction. In other words, his faith was already kind of stirred up. There's rumors around about this man. They're calling him the Messiah, and he's already kind of getting excited about it. But his high school yearbook probably said that he's the least likely to get saved, Zacchaeus was. You see, Zacchaeus served as a symbol he, for, for a lot of people today, a symbol, a symbol of someone who is bent on self. It goes like this. In order to get ahead in life, you've got to step over people to get ahead in life. Otherwise, you're going to be eating somebody's dust. There's a lot of people that have that kind of mindset. You know what? You've got to take care of my own. Because if I don't take care of my own, and if it means stepping over other people, well, then that's just too bad. And maybe Zacchaeus started out with that kind of attitude. I don't know. But he, was, he, had, a, he had success in his life. The Bible says he was a chief tax collector in the town called Jericho. And for this, he may have been despised. He was despised by his Jewish countrymen because he worked hand in hand with the Roman government to collect taxes. And so the Romans may have loved him, but the Jews, they loathed him. They saw him as an absolute traitor to the Jewish people. They were under the oppression of the Roman government, and he's just one of them is the way they thought about it. You see, tax collectors were known for being extortionist, and certainly Zacchaeus shared in the guilt. I'm pretty sure about that. So basically, Zacchaeus, he was an uppity, overpaid, IRS executive. At the, yeah, that's funny, huh? The qualification. See, I didn't know I'd get a laugh out of that. I'm serious. Uppity, overpaid IRS executive at the Jericho branch. Who would have thought? But like a schoolboy in a town parade... He heard Jesus was passing by, and he didn't want to miss the opportunity. You see, we prejudge what people are all about, but you know what? Everybody needs Jesus. Everybody needs Jesus. There can be no argument. Uh, Again, Jesus has the most attractive and influential ministry of anybody in all the world, reaching all kinds of people of every economic and social background. He just loves everybody. Jesus just loves everybody. He doesn't care if you're white or black or red or brown. He doesn't care about your sexual orientation. He does not care. He loves everyone. But because he loves everyone, he says to us, drop what you're doing in life and come follow me. Come follow me. There's the charge. His grace-filled demeanor, his ability to work power over disease... 
All of that was a jaw dropper in his day. And guess what? Today too. His life, his ministry will make us all go, when we connect with him, this is what we get. He is like a flourishing river in the midst, in the midst of our dry and desolate lives. Matter of fact, the prophet Isaiah had something to say about that. He said, behold, in Isaiah 43, 19, you might have it. Behold, I do a new thing. Now it shall, now it shall spring forth. Shall you not know it? I will even make a road in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. Isaiah was prophesying about the Messiah. Our Messiah has the ability, the power, to make rivers in places that are impossible to make. Roads that are impossible to have. Now, I want to recap. We're going to do a little bit of exegetical verse-by-verse today in this sermon. Go back to verse 1, and let's just highlight it for a few seconds. And then uh, I want to comment on each verse as much as possible. Verse 1, Luke 19. Then... Jesus entered and passed through Jericho. Now, you know me a little bit. I, this is what, my ninth or tenth sermon. I'm always talking about the fact that God is passing by. And we're crazy to hear. We've we got to hear it. God's, he's passing by. That is the ministry of Jesus. Please do not doubt for a second. Every local church gets a chance to climb a sycamore tree because Jesus will pass by. What will we do? If he invites himself over our house, what will we do? Well, preacher, we're not really set up for that, really. If the shepherd of all souls wants to walk our aisles, sit in our pews, and to correct our ways of life, to heal our hearts, I think we might want to figure out how to get set up for that. You see, he is a living Christ. He's not words on a page. He wants to pay visitation to us. He wants to uh, make an impact on our life in a real way. We don't want to be a Martha. We want to be a Mary, right? Gleaning from him, learning from him. All of that is possible. So as he passed through Jericho, Zacchaeus put out the feelers first. He put out the feelers first. He proactively sought after Jesus when he ran to the tree and he climbed up the tree like a little kid. Right? He was about to find out that, hey, there's some things that are better than money. There you go. Yeah. He's about to find out that, well, I don't know, maybe I can have a clear conscience if I get to know this Jesus. Maybe his conscience was not quite right. Maybe he was tired of of the, the neighbors hating him. Maybe he was tired of feeling guilty. I don't know. Maybe he was tired of the under-the-table business deals that were going on, giving him a whole lot of money. And maybe he was having a perspective, I need something better. The Bible points out the fact that he was a chief tax collector who was rich, verse 2 says. This means he probably had influence or maybe a real voice in the community. Not sure, but maybe. A recent study shows that how government jobs today pay more on average than private sector jobs. Did you know that? Most government jobs today are at a higher level than private sector jobs. Zacchaeus, he landed an awesome government job. That's what he did. He probably had full medical, right? Everything covered, full dental. He probably had a 401k. He probably worked like the Europeans, four-day work week. Wouldn't that be nice? 
off on holidays, right? Off on the weekends. You couldn't get fired from that job if your life depended on you. It was very secure. In other words, it was a plush job. He had everything that he needed in life. But beyond that, he had those under-the-table extortion deals that sweetened the pot for him. He was getting rich off of a lot of people. Look at verse 3. He sought to see who Jesus was. Why? Why? He had everything he needed. He had everything he wanted. Why was Zacchaeus seeking him? Why such a big deal? People in general do not seek to know Jesus, I have to tell you. We make the mistake of thinking that people show up at church because they're looking for Jesus. And it's true that some people are looking for Jesus when they come to church. But not everyone's looking for Jesus. Please understand, not everyone who shows up at church has an interest in Jesus. I've learned this through the years in ministry. Some people are seeking other things. They seek, I don't know, comfort and relief from the drama of their lives. What comfort? Maybe they want to be loved because they live in a lot of fear and emptiness. And some people are looking for love. And all these are are worthy things to seek. Don't misunderstand me. Others just want to have a better relationship. Or maybe to feel accepted or to feel approved. To feel like someone cares about them. All of that is wonderful. Some people, they come to church because they want to make some friends. Nothing wrong with that. Others show up for a more selfish reason. Maybe they want a sense of power or control. People have manipulate and do all kinds of things. Sometimes there's a combination of things that people come to a church and come in fellowship in church. There are many reasons why people climb their sycamore tree of church life looking for something. But not all of them are necessarily that have anything to do with Jesus himself. And that's the distinction I'm trying to make. On this day, it is clear Zacchaeus wanted to see Jesus more than anything else in his life. It was a brief moment. He was excited about it. He may even have been a little giddy about it, in my view. It's possible because he's acting like a little kid. And I love it when adults act like little kids every once in a while. You can't act like a little kid all the time. But every, right? Right? But every once in a while, you're kind of excited about something that's going on, and you've heard stories about this Messiah. I can't see him because I'm so short. I'm down over here. What, oh, look, a tree. Wham, he's up the tree. It takes real God-given desire to seek Jesus. It takes real desire to knock on his door, a fortitude to press in, to touch the hem of his garment. And the Bible teaches how the unsaved do not search for God. Did you know that? The Apostle Paul taught in Romans chapter 3, there, are, there is none who seek after God. Not even one, Romans 3 says. You trying to jive me? That's what they say when I was young. You trying to jive me? No, I'm not trying to jive you. The Holy Spirit alone must first cause them to seek and knock. The Holy Spirit alone. He first causes them to seek their need, right? That is, their need for a Savior. Well, why do they need a Savior? Why do they need to be saved? Because they, like us, were born into a human race, a race polluted with depravity and utter sinfulness from its inception. You see, 
We, we sing that old, you know, the old hymn in, in, the, in the day, you know, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind spiritually. I could not connect with God. I could not hear him. I could not see him. Why? Because it started with my ancestors, Adam and Eve, that got disconnected with God. But now I can see. Why? A connection has been made. Now it's not that I always see him, but now I can see him. And see, we can sing that song or any song that has to do with the grace of God and any song that has to do with I was blind, but now I can see. What we're talking about here is seeing him for who he is. We were spiritually blind to the person of Christ. But now, hey, our eyes have been spiritually opened. We know who he is. I think Jesus, he even appealed to this. He said to Peter, hey, Peter, who do men say I am? You know the story. And Peter said, well, some say uh, a prophet, some say Elisha. No, 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 Peter, who do you say I am? And then in the old King James, you know, well, thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. Well done, Peter. Well done. I bet you Jesus applauded him. Well done, Peter. Flesh and blood has not revealed this to you but my father. In other words, Peter, you've had a revelation that is impossible to have until or unless the Holy Spirit brings it to you. And that is to the person of Christ. But the true unsaved person is totally blind by Satan. Come on, man. Blind by Satan. You want a scripture for that? There's a really good scripture for that. I'm not making it up. The apostle Paul taught us in 2 Corinthians 4, 4. I'm going to read it real slow. It's a powerful verse. But even if our gospel is veiled, I was raised Catholic. I, the, the women used to come to church with a veil over their, their head and their face. And so you really couldn't see them very well. You had to either pull up the veil or, or, or you had to know who they were. But even if our gospel is, it is veiled, it is veiled to th- those who are perishing, whose minds the God of this age has blinded. What? The God of this age? Isn't there only one God? Well, in this context, Paul is saying, yeah, there are many gods, but there's only one true creator God. But there are, in a sense, the word God there in its origin is governor, to be a government, to, to control. So the God of this age has blinded the unsaved. So I would suggest to you, not only can they not, or they, they will not, understand who he is they are unable to understand who he is we were born spiritually blind through natural birth an an inherited blindness that came through our ancestors adam and eve our first parents were guilty of high treason against the holy god and the separation took place there and ever since then every person being born into the world is born with the inability to know christ by themselves that's shocking but because someone dared to shine the light of the gospel in our direction. Someone dared to say, hey, let me tell you about Jesus. That light, with all of God's power, opened our eyes. The scales came down. Now we see, oh, this is not just any, any man. This is the eternal Son who has always been with the Father. That's a revelation. So I'm convinced convinced that Zacchaeus, he had 
an Abraham kind of faith before Jesus showed up. And so now we're going to see how it's going to take him to the next level. So the second half of verse 3, we see that Zacchaeus could not see him because of the crowd. Did you notice that little piece of information there? He could not see him. He was too short. He couldn't see Jesus going by. And I, I want to say to you that there's always going to be a crowd in your way or in my way. The crowd is simply an obstacle to block your view, right? The crowd is simply a distraction keeping you from the real answers of life. It, it represents those things in life meant to detain and detour you from seeking who Jesus is. Some people run to their therapist first for the answers of life. Or maybe run to their doctor first. They run to their financial guru first. Those are the wrong people. We've got it backwards. We need to place Jesus at the center of our lives, even in the very practical things. If Jesus says, hey, I want you to go to the doctor because I have something for the, I want the doctor to do something with you. Well, then there's already a connection. Oh, you want me to go to the doctor? Which doctor? Well, tell me the doctor. We need to have a cultivated ear to hear the very details that Jesus... Because I tell you what, he wants us to be healed. He don't care if it's through the doctor or just in a crazy miracle way. He can do it. I'm not down on doctors. But when you're looking for a real move of God in life, it's easy to become distracted by a crowd. And I'm sure that there's many crowds. I, you know, I surround myself with people all day long. Not everybody in there is, is necessarily going to help me find Jesus. Many of them are trying to get in the way. Again, I don't believe Jesus was a non-believer necessarily. He was Jewish by race who, who needed more than just the rules of Judaism, if you know what I'm saying. And we'll see it today how his Abraham kind of faith brought him to a new place. You see, if, if Christianity for you is nothing more than keeping a set of rules, I would suggest that you have missed it. I would suggest that it's not about rules at all. Rules are, do not create relationship. Rules only keep you in the parameters of life. You go outside the parameters, you're going to die. I understand that. So Zacchaeus found a way to get above. Look at verse 4. So he ran ahead and he climbed up into the sycamore tree to see him. For he was going to pass by. So you see, he was willing to do something that, I don't know, was kind of undignified, you know, being a, a grown man. Sometimes you got to do some things that are a little bit undignified. Running and climbing and getting all excited. Well, we don't do that, you know. We, gotta, our, we have our reputation, you know. I mean, we are here. And, you know, we, we do that at times. But we rob who? We rob ourselves. Because when Jesus sees the heart of people who says, I'm excited about him and I make no apologies for it. The Apostle Paul said, I am a fool for Christ. I want that. I want that. Sometimes we need to find our own sycamore tree to get the results that we need, especially we as adults, you know. Look at verse 5. When Jesus came to the place, he looked up and he saw him and said, Hey, Zacchaeus, make haste. Come down today. I'm going to be in your house, right? I'm coming over your house. Wouldn't you love Jesus to say that to you? I'm coming over your house. You've heard, you know, how people give invitations 
to come to Jesus at the altar, you know, the, even the Billy Graham crusades in the old days and to receive Jesus. And actually today, many churches give altar calls. You can come forward and receive Jesus as your personal Savior. All of that is wonderful. But in this case, Jesus himself was, was inviting. A, a, a shift has taken place. This wasn't about Zacchaeus seeking Jesus as much as it was about Jesus seeking Zacchaeus. There's a difference there. There are times in life when God desires to make a real and meaningful connection with you. Not something on a page. A real connection with you and with me. So he says, hey, I want to come over to your house. What would it be like for Jesus to come over our house, literally? To walk through each room. To walk down the hallway, right? To walk into the kitchen. You see the dirty dishes in the... Oh, I'm sorry, the dirty dishes got to clean the dishes, I'm sorry. The living room wasn't vacuumed. And we may think he's looking down his nose at our unsettled, uh, uncompleteness, we'll call it that. Seeing the bedrooms, seeing the clothes on the floor, everything, just a mess. And I'm sure that when we get used to him walking around, I don't know how we can get used to Jesus walking. No, we need to get used to him walking around. Because guess what? He already knows all about your house. He knows everything about you. And me, right? But he even wants to go a little further at times. He says, well, I, I saw everything, and guess what? I still love and accept you. I'd never stop loving and accepting you. We're just with all of this mess that's in your house at some times. Or he walks into the house, and everything is pristine and perfect. Hmm, wow, everything's awesome. What does he really think about that? But then he says something like, you got a basement, a cellar? Yeah, I got a cellar. Well... Do you mind if I go down there? Oh, no, 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 no. Not the cellar. You don't understand. The cellar is something else. If we go down there, I mean, there's cobwebs and, and creepy things that are lingering, you know. For some people, the basement or the cellar, it represents the hidden and broken things in life. The disappointments. The divorce. The death in the family. The broken relationships. The cellar represents the abuse. There's a lot of dead bones down there. And I'm telling you, when Jesus comes over your house, he's going to want to go down there too. Not to destroy, not to judge, not to condemn, but the brilliance of his person to illuminate and to heal. He wants to heal your basement and everything that is in it. That is Jesus. That is his heart. Moving on to verse 6. Did you notice how, G, how, how Zacchaeus received him with joy in verse 6? No, this wasn't an awkward moment, I don't think. It, it wasn't a fearful moment, a shameful moment. It was a face-to-face -face encounter with the living God. It was a divine encounter. Have you noticed how some Christians don't have any joy in their testimony? Some Christians have this incredible joy. And then other Christians are just like, mm, I'm, woe is me, I'm barely making it alive. They got a little quiver in the voice. But no, it's real. Something's not right. Um, yeah, I, hope, I hope he loves me. I hope he'll, he'll accept me, you know. And something's not right. Maybe they have not had the sycamore tree. You see, you can be in church all your life and not have the sycamore tree. We need the sycamore tree, the encounter. But look at verse 7. When the crowd saw Jesus, they, he had invited 
uh, Zacchaeus, they had something to say. Hey, he's gone to be a guest with a man who is a sinner? Is this right? I think they were absolutely sincere about it. How, how, where did they come up with He's hanging out with sinners. Really, yeah. It's the us and them people. I call them the us and them people. I don't like the us and them people. No, because they kind of categorize things. These are church folks who like to categorize people. There's an us, the non-sinners, the righteous, really? Is that how you think of yourselves? The good people, the moral people. And then there's them over there. They got, their lives are all messed up. We're the ones with the house and Jesus comes in and everything's perfect. And they're the ones that there's clothes on the floor and the, and the vacuum hasn't been run in two weeks. Right? Do you think Jesus is smarter than that? He, he is. He's so smart. He, I know. I see what you're saying. I, do, I, I get it. Jesus was always criticized for not making this distinction with them. He knew that everyone was a sinner. He did. Everyone needs a Savior. Everyone. It doesn't matter if you think that you're righteous. You, you attribute it to yourself. I got my life together. You know, I'm the one that built this empire, right? I'm the one that made it happen for the house. We get all puffy head, you know. We think that we, just, we are it. And we just simply need a reality check. He loved to hang out with people that say, you know what, I know that if it wasn't for Jesus, I wouldn't even be alive. If it wasn't for him. He loves those kind because at least those people are honest with the disposition that they have, with who they are at that, in that, that season of their life. These people are just playing games with themselves. Back to the text, verse 8. Jesus, uh, Zacchaeus, in response to the complaint, he offered Jesus what I call the fruit of of repentance. Look at verse 8. Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Lord, look, I give half of my goods to the poor. That's like saying, okay, let's say you got a $300,000 house. I'm going to give $150,000 of that house to these other people over here. And, I have, and if I've made any false accusations, I restore fourfold. He's generous. In other words, I want to make things right. I want to work towards reconciliation between me and them. I'm not just talking a talk. I'm walking it. I'm putting it on the line. You see, this was a real, a real transformation for Zacchaeus. I have to mention, and I have mentioned to a few of you, that today many churches totally abandon this very basic tenet in the Christian church. And that is the tenet of repentance, the doctrine of repentance. And it's no longer found in their preaching in some churches. It's no longer in their Sunday school curriculum. It's no longer in people's speech in many places, conservative and liberal, by the way. Why? Something has happened. Repentance is like the glue that helps us, uh, I don't know, get grounded in the true reality of our state, of who we really are. So in the name of, let's accept everyone's lifestyle without condition because God loves all people unconditionally is the new agenda in many churches, resulting in an influx 
of lifestyles and culture unyielded to the sycamore tree. So this is what happens. This is what happened in the third century, by the way, where the culture came in and dominated the culture of the church. So at first glance, I can agree with much of the statement. I mean, after all, God is unconditional in his love. And I challenge you to love people with no strings attached. Totally, completely. Because if you can do that, it's not even your love. It's Christ loving through you. It's Jesus through you, not Jesus to you. So, but accepting people without accepting how they may live is very unclear for many people. You see, Jesus loved Zacchaeus enough to visit him, knowing full well that was, the things that Zacchaeus was doing needed a real change because Zacchaeus was abiding in death. Now, take it a step further. Jesus knew full well that Judas was a thief. That Judas was a... He knew before he even signed him on. I bet you he's the one that brought around the page with, sign your name there, I want you to be my disciple. He knew everything about Judas, right? Why did he do that? Because he loved everybody, even Judas. He loved the Pharisees. Jesus loved those Pharisees. And if you study his ministry, in the beginning of his ministry, there wasn't a whole lot of fighting going on with the Pharisees. But gradually over time, the Pharisees were coming to him to confront He wasn't going looking for them. He would go into the temple and just start preaching the freedom of the gospel, and they would come to him, and they had something to say. But it didn't start out that way. By the end of his ministry, they were uh, basically wanting to just kill him, right? So this is a hard subject, this issue of repentance. The church has, has her own biblical standard to embrace if we want God to show up at the sycamore tree. See, really, that's what it's about. Remember the perfume. I'm always talking about the perfume of a broken spirit, a contrite harp. That perfume is a perfume of repentance. We so need, I need it. The perfume of repentance. God, even though my house is looking good today, I, I, I got issues. I, I, I just let it go. I cannot live. And I told you before, there was a day when I threw down my Bible. I was young. I threw down my Bible, and I almost like shook my fist at God. I didn't quite shake my fist. I was scared that he'd zap me or something, you know. (laughs) You know, I risk race Catholic. But I can't live this life. I can't. I can't. I can't. I can't. I can't. I don't understand it, God. And he would say, I love you anyway. I don't care. I just love you. And that became a healing, to hear that God loved me at my worst. Oh, I needed that. When we think of repentance, we usually think of someone getting saved at an evangelistic conference. You know, Acts 2.38. Repent and and be baptized in the name of Jesus for the remission of your sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. It's treated as a one-time, for all-time, finish line at the moment of salvation in many places. But listen to Martin Luther. I quote him a lot. Great reformer of the of, uh, 16th century. He says, Our Lord and Master Jesus Christ is saying, Repent ye, willed that the whole life of believers should be repentance. So the point is, repentance should be a constant 
in our life. If you're trying to live the new life in Christ without forsaking the old, you're going to die. And that is, in a natural sense, I'm not talking about physically die, but you're not connected. You can't. Doing a 180-degree turnaround is something that we should do moment to moment, day to day. Some people, it takes time to turn around. They're like the Titanic. You know, no, seriously, because, you know, a big ship like that, you can't just turn around. You turn around like this. And eventually I get around there. You know, it takes too long to do that in a sermon. But you know what I'm saying. And so repentance is, is so much more than just what we are customary. We, we, we look at repentance. I, re, I believe repentance, it's not a condition for eternal life, by the way. That'll stir up heads. But it is absolutely necessary to enjoy that life. There's the tree again and its benefits. Without repentance, it would be like Zacchaeus never climbing the sycamore tree, never having the encounter. Without repentance, it would be like Abraham, whose faith was accounted to him as righteousness in Genesis chapter 15. But he never made it to Mount Moriah to build the the altar for his son in Genesis 22. That's what it would be like. and It's an incompletion of the total Christian walk. I've never met a happy, unrepented Christian. I've never met one. I've never met a joyful person submitted to the will of God who hasn't taken an honest inventory of their own life and what they do. It's a, it takes a little bit of guts to look in and take a look around at our furniture in our house. We get to look at other people's furniture. It's not our business. Our business is to look at our furniture. So what is repentance? Again, the standard definition is to change direction. We got that. To change your mind. When the scholars were trying to figure out an English translation, they, they agreed that the word repentance is really not good enough. The, the English word doesn't make, make it. The, the prefix re is to go back. Pent is where we get the word penthouse, which means high up place. It was typically used to mean go back to where you used to be. Go back to the tree. Today, and by the way, the Septuagint says that word is best described by the word regret. To regret living the old life. You see, it begins with, I would suggest, the seed of regret. But eventually produces the fruit of right behavior. It starts out with, I regret the choices that I made because I'm living in the land of disconnection with God. I regret that I made this this choice because there's nothing good about it in my life. And eventually, if it's cultivated, it shows up in the rest of your life, in the part that everyone else can see. John the Baptist rebuked the Pharisees when he said in Matthew chapter 3, Brood of vipers, he's angry, who warns you to flee from the wrath to come. Therefore, bear fruits worthy of repentance. Acts eleven eighteen. Peter preached, uh, and the narrative says, When they heard these things, they held their peace, glorified God, saying, Then he, then has God also granted to the Gentiles repentance unto life? Yes, they, they, yes he has. You see, repentance is a doorway, much like the sycamore tree, a doorway to a more connected relationship with God. 
So what if, if you say, well, I don't feel like repenting? Oh, I won't make you. I can't even make you repent, or I can't even make myself repent. I have to fall upon the grace and mercy of God. Help me, Lord, come into this place. Grant me repentance over my issue. And so what happens if you stay in that state? It's like a tree that never gets watered. It eventually just kind of, it's, it, it doesn't serve the purposes of God. It may show up in church in our life. It doesn't, it doesn't serve the purposes of God. So you, it's a doorway. In closing, do you have an unrepented family member who is in Christ? Pray that God would grant them repentance leading to a full and rich life. Listen to the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 7, one of the last uh, verses here today. He said, now I rejoice that you were made sorry, but that your sorrow led to repentance. For you were made sorry in a godly manner that you might suffer loss from us in nothing. Verse 10, for godly sorrow produces repentance leading to salvation not to be regretted. Now let me just tweak it a little bit. In verse 10, leading to salvation the apostle is not talking about eternal salvation. It's not in the context. He's talking to save people. What he's saying here is that godly sorrow produces repentance leading to a delivered life, a higher place in God, a new connection with God. The word salvation there is also the word deliverance, to be delivered from one place to another place. And so he's talking to saved people that to come from here and go to here, and you won't regret it. You won't regret it. Paul says, godly sorrow produces repentance leading to salvation. So Jesus, he said to him, to Zacchaeus in verse 9, today salvation, again, context. He was already a child of Abraham who had Abraham's faith. So the salvation, he's not talking about eternal life here. Today, deliverance has come to this house because he also is the son of Abraham. I wondered about the word also there. What do you mean also? I had to go back and look at the previous chapter. And in that chapter, there was a blind man. Who, and I, I think I even mentioned it to you one time. He, was, he heard that Jesus is coming by. And he's, Jesus, son of David. And Jesus, who is that? Everybody's yelling at you, Lord. I don't know what you're saying. No, 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 not everybody. I mean, there's people yelling at me, but this is not just any kind of yell. This is a cry. This is a hunger pain. Who is that? Bring him here. They brought him. What do you want? I want to see. Let it be according to your faith. He healed him on the spot. That's where he also comes in here because the very next thing that happened was the story with Zacchaeus. Just like that man... He was a son of Abraham who had Abraham faith. Zacchaeus had Abraham faith. The salvation Jesus is talking about is a result of repentance. But remember, in this context, it's about deliverance. And so the final verse, for the Son of Man has come to seek and to save, to deliver that which was lost, a people of God, covenant people, by the way, Israel at that time, was, they were under covenant. A covenant people that were lost to save them. How about you? Do you need repentance? Like me, by the way. Because I do, every day. Do you need to climb your sycamore tree? 
Have you even thought about it? Is church simply a, a horizontal connection, which is good, but it's not the only connection. There's also a vertical connection in a corporate body where Jesus, he really does walk our aisles wanting to hear and smell those sounds, those odors of a broken heart. Is life not working for you? If it's not, today, after the service, I'm going to stand right here. Meet with me. I'll be glad to pray with you or to just talk with you in a private way. Um, let's have a good day today, guys. This is a hard, another hard issue is how repentance fits in to the body of Christ. It is a passageway to higher places in God. If, you know, they owe him, I surrender all, I surrender all. Let's, that, that's what it's about for us, to surrender. I can't do it, Lord. Throw down my Bible. I don't understand Christianity. Is it a bunch of rules? Because I can't keep the rules. No, it's about a relationship. It's about a connection with him. Let's stand together. I'll pray and we'll, we'll be released in just a moment here. Let's pray. Gracious Father, help us to grasp the depth of your son in this ministry of repentance, this ministry of the sycamore tree and his desire to know us, for us to know him the way he knows us. Help us, Lord, to have these hungers that are buried deep, that we can get the shovel out and dig them out of our hearts and present them to you, our need to know you and to love you. We ask for this in Jesus' name. And Everyone said amen. amen. God bless you guys. Hug a few people before you leave here. See you next time.